Well, when we come to the Scriptures, one of the prominent themes of the book of, of Proverbs is the danger of associating with wrong people. Listen to some Proverbs. Proverbs 4, verse 14. Do not enter the path of the wicked and do not proceed in the way of evil men. Avoid it and do not pass by it. Turn away from it and pass on. Proverbs 13, 20. He who walks with the wise men will be wise, but a companion of fools will suffer harm. Proverbs 22, verse 24, Do not associate with a man given to anger, or, or go with a hot-tempered man, or you will learn his ways, and you will find a snare for yourself. Proverbs 23, 20, Do not be with heavy drinkers of wine, or with gluttonous eaters of meat. For heavy drinker, the heavy drinker and the glutton will come to poverty, and drowsiness will clothe one with rags. And right at the beginning, Proverbs 1.10 says this, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. So the best path when dealing with those who are, are wrong and sinful is to avoid them and don't associate with them. The teaching is all over Scripture. Psalm 1, the very first psalm in the Psalter starts this way, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the path of sinners, nor stand in the seat of scoffers, nor sit in the seat of sinners. For his delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law he meditates day and night. You are blessed to stay away from the company of sinful people. You see this example, Lot associated with those of Sodom. Almost cost him his life. When Israel chose to follow the, the ten unbelieving spies rather than the two believing spies, it cost them 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And those who sided with Korah in his rebellion were swallowed by the earth. And when people followed Absalom, they soon lost whatever power they, they had. The wicked kings of Israel led the country to ultimate defeat by Assyria. And the wicked kings of Judah led them to defeat as well by the hands of Babylon. Paul simply summarized it this way, bad company corrupts good morals. And the concern we have in our text this morning is this very concern that bad company corrupts good morals. And the flip side, that good company continues to increase morals. You might say that as well. Paul's concern for the Philippians that they might follow a bad example of destruction. Instead, he calls those in Philippi to, to follow the good examples to eternal life. And I invite you, if you haven't done so already, to the book of Philippians chapter 3. We're going to begin this morning in verse 17. And uh, I had every intention to finish this chapter. But I think I want to really, really rest and trust verse 20 and 21 next week as it's so rich. We'll just go through verse 19. And so if we're a little shorter today, that's okay. I didn't, just, I didn't want to just cram 20 and 21 at the end of the message. I want to just savor that because it speaks about heaven and our citizenship there. The message this morning is entitled this, Who are you following? Who are you following? That's the big question of our text this morning. And Paul's desire is that the Philippians would follow the right example. The good example. So, as I read it, listen for Paul's heart to urge the Philippians along the right path. He says this, verse 17, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is their shame who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship 
is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. Well, we see the good example here in verse 17. He says this, Brethren, join in following My example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Paul is calling those in Philippi to follow his example. Now, there are those who play pious and say, well, we shouldn't follow other people. We should only follow Jesus. And they can point to the problems addressed. Say like 1 Corinthians chapter 1-4. through There's a big problem in Corinth because some are saying, well, I'm of Paul. And some are saying, well, I'm of Apollos. And some are saying, well, I'm of Cephas. And then some pious were saying, well, I'm of Jesus. And it was causing dissensions and problems and splits. And so people say, well, it's, it's not about following people. It's about following Christ. And people can say, I'm not about following people. Well, such a sentiment, although right in some regards, betrays this text. Because this text, Paul says, join in following my example. Follow me. And in fact, it is interesting that, that this problem of following people, say in 1 Corinthians 1, by the time Paul gets to 1 Corinthians 4, where he's still talking about this problem, he says this, chapter 4, verse 16 of 1 Corinthians, Therefore I exhort you, be imitators of me. And later on, in that same epistle, he says, 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. And of course, that's where we should imitate people, only to the extent that they imitate Christ. But people are trying to flush it out. And if they're good examples, we should follow good examples. Paul, on several other occasions, spoke about how people should follow him. 1 Thessalonians 1.6 You became imitators of us and of the Lord, commending the Thessalonians that, that, that you imitated us. You imitated the Lord. 2 Thessalonians 3.7 You yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. As Paul came into Thessalonica, and taught them and trained them, he said, our example is worthy to be followed, so follow the, the good example. So don't get hung up on the pious-sounding argument that we should only follow Christ. Now, it's, it's not wrong, but this text here even calls us to join in following Paul. It's not wrong to follow the examples of others, provided they're good examples. If they're bad examples, like bad company corrupts good morals, you don't want to do that. But you should follow good examples. In this passage, Paul calls those in Philippi to follow his example. And in fact, all of chapter 3 is all about his example. Beginning in verse 5, he puts forth his own testimony. In verse 4, he says, Listen, I, of anybody, might have confidence in the flesh. Let me show you how much confidence I might, might put in the flesh. His ancestry, circumcised the eighth day, the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. My ancestry causes me to be able to trust in the flesh. Not only that, but his attainments. He says as to law of Pharisee, as to zeal, persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. He says, listen, I could... Trust in the flesh. But he says, verse 7, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. And you need to understand that for a Jew, all of these things were gained. It was gained to be circumcised the eighth day and be of the tribe of Benjamin, to be a, a thoroughgoing Jew. And it was gained to be a, a Pharisee. And it was gained to be an expert in the law. And it was gained to be zealous for the law. And it was gained to be blameless in following it. But when it came to following Christ, all his ancestry and attainments were nothing 
Because God doesn't save us based on our ancestry. He doesn't save us because of our religious achievements. He saves us by His grace. He saves us from our sin, not because of our works of righteousness, but because of His mercy. He saves us because because of His righteousness that He gives us when we believe in Him. In other words, when we believe in Christ, He takes our faith and credits us to us as righteousness. That's the point of verse 9. We've seen this in recent weeks. I just want to review. This is the context of Philippians 3.17. He says that I may be found in Jesus, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, being a zealous Pharisee, being blameless in law. That's not how I get righteous in Jesus, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, the righteousness that when I believe God, I get His righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 we talked about earlier. That's the example of Paul. Not trusting in his own works, but trusting solely in Christ. And my question then comes to you this morning. Is that your example? Are you following that example of Paul set up for us in chapter 3? This is the context. This is what he's saying. Join in following my example. You say, what example? Well, look at the example I set forth for you in chapter 3. Or are you perhaps trusting in your own righteousness, right? The, the equivalent of, of Paul in in uh, verse 4, 5, and 6 might be this. You might be looking to your baptism or your church attendance or your family reputation or the ways that you have served Jesus in the past or your education or your diligence in reading good Christian books or the Bible or your prayers or something else that you've done. Are you trusting in that? Well, to follow Paul's example says, I count all those things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Verse 8. Do you count those things as loss? Are they in the back of your mind someplace trusting in them? And I just let me tell you, God is not impressed by your works. He wants you to come to Him by faith. And following the example of Paul compels us to come to God by faith, not trusting in our own righteousness. That's what he means when he says, join in following my example. It's not so much join in everything I'm doing so you can do all those things, but join in my faith and trust in Christ. Now, such a belief can lead down the wrong path as we saw last week in verses 10 through 16. There, there are some people who erroneously conclude, well, I'm made righteous by my faith in Him, therefore I can live whatever way I want. I don't really need to even pursue God. I, I, can, I can walk whatever way I want and, and live without any regard for Christ. And Paul says, not so. When, when he came to embrace Christ, it stirred him to pursue Jesus with a greater diligence than ever before. Isn't that what verse 10 is about? Right? That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. See, Paul had this insatiable desire to know Jesus. And and verses 12 through 14 really lay it out. He said in verse 12 that I, I press on to lay hold of Him. In verse 13, he says, I forget what lays behind me. Verse 14, I press on towards the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's the attitude of Paul. It's just, yes, I'm forgiven. Yes, I'm made righteous. Yes, I'm fully justified. In some sense, I am mature. In some sense, I am perfect. And yet, there's this other sense where practically I'm not. I'm still a sinner. I need to pursue Jesus with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my might. And and I say this, is that your attitude? If indeed you've come to faith in Christ, are you pressing on? Are you seeking to know Him more intimately? Is Jesus your treasure? Is He your prize? 
When Paul says, verse 17, join in following my example, that's his example. To understand, right, justified by faith alone, and yet understand zeal and passion in serving God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. But it's interesting here, verse 17, it's not just Paul's example. He, he makes it bigger. Look at that next phrase. Join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. So in other words, Paul says, right, right, I've, I've walked this way, but there are others who have the same pattern. And at first glance, of course, the primary reference is to Timothy and Epaphroditus, both of whom were mentioned in this book, both of whom I think are referred to as this us. In fact, even in, in chapter 1, verse 1, when Paul writes the book, it's Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. Timothy's right with Paul. Paul clearly wrote the book. It's all in first person. I, 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 I. But when he refers to us, Timothy's right there and Epaphroditus is the messenger is going to receive this letter. And both of these men in chapter 2, we see outlined the examples that they are. In fact, chapter 2 is the example of Jesus, right? Who, who existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. That's why God exalted him. So the example of Jesus even followed that with the example of Paul when he says, um, verse 18, you two rejoice in the same way, share your joy with me, that he was a, he was a model of that. And then comes in, in chapter 2, verse 19, the model of, of Timothy. And if you remember about Timothy, Timothy was pressing on in the faith. Timothy was pursuing the Lord with all his passion. He was a a like-minded heart with the Apostle Paul. Look at verse 20 of chapter 2. It says this, I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. He had a kindred spirit. He had a, a like soul with the Apostle Paul. And he knew of the grace of God in his life. You go back to 2 Timothy and you can see that when Paul is writing to Timothy in chapter 1, he says, I am mindful of the sincere faith within you which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I'm sure that it's in you as well. You have this faith. And Paul then urged Timothy, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is within you. He says, you do have this faith. You do have this grace. I know it. I've seen it. And you are a kindred spirit. But Timothy didn't merely rest on his faith, living for his own lusts. No, while trusting Christ for his forgiveness and righteousness, he was pressing on. He, he gave himself to others. Look at verse 20 again. That he will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. I send Timothy there. He's going to be concerned for you. He's not even going to be concerned for himself. Verse 21, it's those people who seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know he's going to seek after your interests, not his own. That's one who's pressing on, is pressing on to serve. And in verse 22, we see the same thing. We see, but you know, Philippians, of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. It's just, just devotion to Paul. Devotion in the furtherance of the gospel. He didn't, he didn't just relax, say, oh, I'm justified right, by, by my faith in Christ. I'm okay. No, he said, since Jesus justified me, he's changed me and given this passion for God. Follow Timothy's example. Same is true of Epaphroditus. He was one, a picture of hard work and labor for Christ. You remember, he's the one that brought the financial gift to the Apostle Paul. Philippians 4.18 He's identified here in verse 25 as your messenger. 
And, and apparently, in bringing this financial gift to the Apostle Paul, there was some... Uh, there was some danger involved because it says in chapter 2, verse 30, that he risked his life for the work of Christ. And I'm not sure whether there's dangers or, or bandits uh, along the way, but, but somehow he, he had run into some problems. And, and it says even he was sick. Maybe he got sick along the way. Maybe he was beaten along the way. Because it says this in verse 27, that indeed he was sick to the point of death. We don't know what it was, but, it, but we do know that it was trouble and hardship that he experienced as a result of his labor for Christ. Verse 30, he came close to death, risking his life for the work of Christ. And like Timothy, Epaphroditus didn't rest on his faith, living in the glories of sins forgiven while living then in the lust of his flesh. No, he was pressing on. In fact, he had a huge heart for others. I think that's why Timothy and Epaphroditus are set up here because it says in um, verse 3 of chapter 2, do nothing for selfishness or empty conceit. For with humility of mind, regard one another as more important yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And Epaphroditus was looking out for the interests of the Philippians. That comes out in chapter 2, verse 26. He was longing for you all and he was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. Right? He, he was sick somehow, whatever the sickness was. And, and he was concerned, not because of his own sickness, but because the Philippians knew that he was sick and they didn't know the outcome. He had such a burden and a heart for other people. And so Paul says this, he says, verse 17 again of chapter 3, Join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. Follow my example. Follow Timothy. Follow Epaphroditus. But if you look carefully at verse 17, uh, I trust that you'll see that the example goes beyond even these three men. The example goes to really anybody who's walking according to the pattern that is in Paul's life. Observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. So Paul lived a way, he said, follow me. We live this way, Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus, right? Follow that way. And anybody else whose pattern of life follows these three men. It goes beyond Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus. And surely there were others living in Philippi who were living exemplary lives worthy of imitation and worthy of following. Like Lydia, perhaps, the seller of purple fabrics. Probably a wealthy woman who came to faith and insisted the apostles stay at her house. Even you can begin to see there just a, a fruit of, of loving strangers and hospitality. The fruit of knowing and trusting Christ. Or like the Philippian jailer who believed in Christ when he heard the Gospel from Paul was immediately baptized and he is all his household as they believed as well and then he had them in their home. And certainly there are others in the church who come to faith who are pursuing Christ with their whole hearts because if you look back even in chapter 1, Paul is saying in chapter 1 verse 5 that I, I thank my God in view of your participation in the Gospel from the first day until now. The f- church in Philippi wasn't just merely some inactive church. It was a church that was... Um, Going and pursuing and sharing and wanting the progress, wanting the gospel to progress. The church in Philippi was growing. He was, they were helping the, the regional needs. Even in Thessalonica, they sent a gift to Paul. And now even they sent another gift to Paul. They were all about seeing the gospel flourish. So the, the, the question comes, are you following such people? Are the people in your life you're following? You, know, you, might, you might think about this. Okay, so who am I following? You, you might think, it comes to mind some radio teacher, some internet 
teacher that you like that's been teaching you the, the Bible, and, and that's wonderful, and you can follow them, that's okay. But, but Paul's not talking about that. Paul's talking about people who live. He's talking about people who can touch, you can see. Who, when they face problems in life, you see how they respond. And, and voices on the radio or the internet, you can't see how they respond. He's talking about real practical people that you can find, that you can follow. And I just encourage you this, even Rock Valley Bible Church, find people who you say, you know what, they're following Paul. They're, they're, they're just like Timothy and Paphrodite. I want to be like them. I want to follow them. I want to know what they're like. May there be a lot of cross-discipleship at, at Rock Valley Bible Church. But even I would do this. I would go further than just saying, who are you following? I would say this. Are you worthy of being followed? Dia Carson said it this way. He said, do you ever say to a young Christian, do you want to know what Christianity is like? Watch me. If you never do, Dia Carson says, you are unbiblical. After all, the Apostle Paul can write elsewhere, follow my examples, I follow the example of Christ. Many things are learned as much by example as by word. And Paul understood this point. He therefore grasped that his responsibility was not only to teach the truth, but to live it precisely for the sake of stamping a new generation. Do we not recognize the principle when we encourage parents to live that they model godly virtues to their children? It's not just what the parents say, it's what the parents do. Follow my example. And all of you parents, I trust you're saying this with your children. It's not do as I say, it is do as I do. Because I don't care how much you say, your children are going to do what you do. In fact, that's one of the most basic principles of of parenting is the, the strength of the marriage draws people, children, to Jesus. And when the, when, the, when the marriage is not strong, the children are weak because they don't see a matter of what Christ and how it works itself out. And, and when parents are passionately pursuing Jesus, it can only help as they bring the children along and following that example. But, but also as a church, boy, church body, can you say that? Can, can, can you say to someone, you want to know what Christianity is like? Follow me. Now, in a humble way, I mean, Paul was saying that certainly. I mean, humility is all about what chapter 1 is about, what chapter 2 is about, right? Uh, of being, being humble and being unified. He's not, he's not arrogant, but I would just say this. To the extent that Philippians 3 is true in your heart, to the extent that you truly understand justification by faith alone, and to the, to the extent that you really understand the imputation of your righteousness from, from Christ compels you to pursue Him, you will be able to say, you want to know what Christianity is like? Follow me. So understand God's gift of grace. Understand desire, that passionate pursuit of Christ. And you can say, watch me. And oh, for a church family to be filled with many people who are examples to be followed. Well, but beginning in verse 18 now, Paul warned those in Philippi, those who are not to be followed. And this is where we, we turn negative a little bit. We've seen the good example, verse 17. Follow Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus, others in Philippi. And we ought to do this well. People who you know. But the bad example here comes in verses 18 and 19. And these people, obviously, you should avoid. You should join those in verse 17. You should avoid those in verse 18 and 19. For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now I tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ 
whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Now, when Paul thinks and speaks and writes about these bad examples, he does so with a tear in his eye. The parchment upon which he wrote was stained with tears. If we could have got that pamphlet, that parchment, or if it still in existence, maybe you could have seen, detected, well, look, there's where Paul cried right on that parchment to the Philippians. Because that's what he says here, many walk of whom I often told you, and now I tell you, even weeping. Paul took no joy in the sinfulness of other people. He took no joy in these enemies of the cross. It was with tenderness that he came to these people. And I just say, such ought to be our tenderness as well to those who are enemies of the cross, who are walking in their sinful ways. We ought to have compassion on them like Jesus. They're deceived and being in great dishonor to the Lord. Remember Jesus, when He was, um, shortly before He was to be crucified, this was maybe Wednesday of the Passion Week, I forget when it was, but He's up there on the Mount of Olives overlooking Jerusalem down the Kidron Valley and overlooking Jerusalem. And He said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. Right? They're sinful, wicked, rebellious, haters of God people. And what does He say though? How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. He just had a heart of compassion. I would not doubt tears were falling on that day. Matthew 23, verse 37, when Jesus was, was pouring out Himself to these people. And these words were after he denounced the Pharisees who professed to be righteous on the outside, but inwardly they were wicked to the core. He said, woe to you. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of robbery and self-indulgence. He says, woe to you. You're like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Contrast the heart of Jesus with the heart of Fred Phelps. I put in the weekly word a week and a half ago, um, that he passed away. He went the way of all flesh. He was the founder of what he called Westboro Baptist Church in Topeka, Kansas. He was a hellfire preacher who preached the gospel of hate. Even, even the website to their church is www.godhatesfags.com. How, do, how, do, how does that match up with a compassion as Paul is, I'm telling you this, weeping? He and his followers, his followers are still doing this. They go to funerals of fallen soldiers who died in combat in Iraq and Afghanistan, picket with signs filled with hatred, and they try to tie the deaths of American soldiers to the, the fact that the United States government is promoting homosexuality. And they seem to rejoice in such soldiers. Listen to what he says. One recent announcement on the website said this, Thank God for seven more dead troops. We are praying for 7,000 more. They'll go anywhere the media is to get the attention to the gospel of hate. They'll be in Arlington, Texas next week for the Final Four of the NCAA tournament. Uh, after that, they'll go to Miley Cyrus concerts. They'll go to the home offices of the National Football League, the National Basketball Association, scheduled for April. Anywhere they get a crowd, they're just looking for themselves to spread this gospel of hate. And they call themselves a church. How dare they? And I say this, contrast that with the attitude of, of Jesus and the Apostle Paul. Jesus, remember, when he, 
He saw the multitudes. He felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And so, when you see people living for their own lusts, and when you see people um, who are are just pursuing their own ways, do you have a heart of compassion for them? Do you have a heart that, that longs to see them come to the Savior? Do you weep for them? Do you know that they're, they're headed for destruction? Do you bring the gospel to them with the hope of eternal life in Jesus? It all comes from Paul here just saying, I'm telling you, these wicked people, and I'm telling you, weeping, because my heart is broken for these people. So let us never be arrogant or proud or filled with hate towards those who are enemies of the cross of Christ. That's the Islam way. Enemy hatred. Oh, we're going to smash them. That's the Fred Phelps way. The, the Christian way is the way to, to win by suffering. To do what Jesus did. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. We are a trampled upon religion. We are a religion which by love will conquer. Let's weep like the prophet Jeremiah. Let's pray for God's mercy upon them because in actuality... We were just where they are. Romans 5.10 While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. When Jesus came to this earth, He came to die for His enemies. He came to transform us into His friends through repentance that He granted to us so we would turn to Him. And I'd say praise be to God and realize that these enemies of the cross are right where we were before we came to faith as well. Well, who are these enemies? Right, verse 18, I tell you, many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Well, who are these enemies? Well, some commentators, maybe the majority of commentators, say that they are Judaizers. The ones who boast in their Jewish heritage and law-keeping. The one who place confidence in the flesh. And, and there certainly is argument for that because in chapter 3, verse 2, we see Paul talking about being where the false circumcision. And then he goes to describe his own circumcision, how he's placed no trust in that. But how, how they did, in fact, 4 through 6 are all about Judaizers. These people are trusting in their own religious righteousness. Well, let me see how much I could trust. And he tops them all. And if Paul could trust more than anybody else, he tops them all, then none of these people can stand. And so he's, he's speaking against the Judaizers. And it may well be that the enemies of the cross here are Judaizers who boast of their heritage, their law-keeping, but in actuality are self-focused, fleshly people described in verse 19. Their end is destruction. That God is their appetite. The glory is in their shame. Who set their minds on earthly things. It could be Judaizers. Now, other commentators call them the antinomians. Anti, against, nomos, the law. The antinomianism. That's why we get Deuteronomy. Deuteros, second, nomos, law. The second law. These are antinomos people. The antinomians. These would be those who, who basically say, yes, I believe in Jesus, but their lifestyle knows no restraint. And I think there's warrant for that as well because that seems to be the error that Paul's addressing in verses 10 through 16. Yes, our deeds count for nothing. Yes, we have a righteousness in Christ that comes by faith. Yes, through faith we are made perfect in Christ. But that doesn't mean it doesn't matter how we live. Those who genuinely know Christ will want to know more deeply and those who genuinely know Christ will want to serve Him because He is the Lord of all will want to worship Him. In verse 19, we... We see those who are, are living for their own lusts and pleasures. They are enemies. Perhaps they could be antinomians. 
So who are these enemies? Well, could it be that Paul has both in mind? Judaizers and antinomians? And perhaps could it be that he's purposely vague here so that we can apply his words to any either group? Because it certainly does apply. Or could it be that there is a third or maybe a fourth group of people in Philippi who claim to be Christians yet are living like the devil? Maybe they have a, a, a touch of Gnosticism in them which says it's only the spiritual that matters. The flesh doesn't matter for anything. Or maybe there's some Epicurean tendencies that just speak about the very materialistic kind of people who yet proclaim Jesus, but yet are, are living for the world. Maybe there's other things going on in Philippi. We, we don't know. One commentator, in fact, listed 18 different scholarly suggestions as to who the opponents were in Philippians 3. So, we don't know. But listen, as foggy as the identity of these individuals are to us, they weren't foggy to the Philippians. Because Paul says that they're well known. Verse 18, look, many walk of whom I often told you. Remember, Paul was with those in Philippi on several occasions. He planted the church in his second missionary journey. You can read about it in Acts 16. And then on his third missionary journey, he visited him twice. Once on his way out to Corinth, and then once on his way back from Corinth. Went right through Philippi. And so he'd, he'd been with them on several occasions. And as we can deem here from verse 18, he'd warned them on several occasions, maybe three times. I often told you, maybe several times when he was with them for the weeks that he was. He warned them of these people. Now, who they were, the Philippians knew, but they're unknown to us. But here's the good news. Regardless of who was in Philippi, these words apply to us in that they apply to everyone who meets this description. There's no doubt that those who are living, it's described in verse 19, who they are, right? These are the bad example whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is their shame. Think about this. These these characteristics that that Paul pulls to these people. He ultimately meets their end first. He kind of gives gives the end of their life first. Their end is destruction. When this life is over, they will go the way of the goats. They will go into eternal destruction. Matthew 25.46 They will not see life. And regardless of what they profess, and regardless of what they may say, as their lifestyle demonstrates what they really believe, they really believe, well, it's the lust and pleasure of my life, which are more important than any Christ. They believe in the here and the now rather than in the, the future. And so, their future will be destruction. The next phrase there, it says, whose God is their appetite. So their small g God is their appetite. In other words, right when it comes down to who their allegiance to, their allegiance is to their belly as to what this literally says. That is, they follow and worship their pleasures, their food and sex and drugs and riches and travel and luxuries and entertainment. Anything that would give pleasure in this life is their God. That's what they worship. And so passionate are they in pursuing their pleasures. They don't even realize how shameful they are because that's what the next phrase, right? Whose glory is in their shame. They rejoice in their sin. They, they, they not only sin, they give hearty approval to it. They encourage others in it. They flaunt it. They boast of their drunkenness. They fight for their freedoms. They parade their sin for all to see. In this day and age of gay pride parades, it's like they're glorying in their flesh and the lusts of their heart. That's exactly what Paul's talking about here. And yet there are many Homosexuals professing to be Christians. And I say this, their glory is in their shame. The last phrase 
tells us what drives these individuals. They set their minds on earthly things. Fundamentally, right, these are enemies of Christ, our earthly people. They love the world. They love the things of the world. And the testimony of 1 John 2.15 is true. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The problem with these people is that the love of the Father is not in them. Paul's message in verse 18 and 19 are, is clear. Right? Don't follow these people. Now, if someone professes to be a follower of Christ and lives for the world, I just say this, avoid him like the plague. And sadly, there are many who follow prosperity preachers who are living lives of pleasure. I mean, you, you, just, you just watch these people who are on TV who do all these great things. IRS is after them. You find out where they live. They're living in mansions with compounds. You find out how many cars they're driving. They're driving multiple cars. They're, they're having, all, you know, horses and cars and shows and fields and, you know, just big living in luxury. And I just say, you know what? It looks a lot like the God is, their, their God is their belly. And people follow after them. This is a, a, a timely warning for today. There, there are many people who, who follow these. How, how do you think they get all this money? How do you think they get all this stuff? It's because they got gullible people following them so they can indulge in their passions. And all the while it helps if you got a message of prosperity. Well, you give to me and God will bless to you. Right? I get all this. Well, how about, how about you give to me and God will bless you? How about you try that? That never works for those preachers. I say, who are you following? Are you following those who conduct themselves according to the, the pattern of this world, living for the here and now, living for their own pleasures, blind to their own sin? Are you following those who in humility follow the Lord Jesus Christ? And really, that's, that's where the contrast comes. We'll look at next week. Verses 20 and 21. Rather than being earthly minded, followers of Christ are heavenly minded my third point just briefly that now we see a good example verse 17 a bad example 18 and 19 but we have a heavenly hope Paul writes this for our citizenship is in heaven which also we eagerly wait for a savior the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself we, we see here Paul talks about our, our true citizenship it, we're not earthly people those who believe in Jesus have a, a heavenly citizenship. And, and we have this heavenly hope that's waiting for Him to come back. And when He comes back, He's going to change us, verse 21. He's going to change our body to be conformed to His. And that's when He's going to subject all things to Himself. And that's where our true hope lies. It's not upon the earth. It's in the, the heavenly home. When, when, when Christ comes and returns to bring us home, when our bodies are transformed and we all bow the knee to Jesus... I just want to pick apart those phrases next week just as we linger here in the book of Philippians. So rather than trying to do it in 10 minutes, I'll do it next week in 45. So what I want us to do though is, is end by this song that we had planned. So Ryan, if you come up, that would be, be great. We, it's very interesting that I was meeting with Ryan this week and just saying, you know, I'd really like to finish my, my message and finish our service this morning by a, a song about heaven. And um, there are some... But there's not a lot. It's because we live in America. We have it too good here. You compare our hymnal to say a, a Baptist, uh, a Russian 
Baptist hymnal from the Cold War eras, 1950s, I think it'd be a lot different because that's the only place their hope would lie. But we chose one, hymn number 772. I just encourage you to open your, your hymnal there. And that just describes, right, following Paul's example, who's got this heavenly hope. Rather than following these earthly bad examples whose, whose whole passion in life is, is caught up in the here and now. This is a song that says, when we all get to heaven... It is a day of rejoicing. I was reading in a book this week, I don't have the quote, it's just coming to mind right now, that um, the author was talking about those who particularly are weak in this life, who are struggling with sin, who are seeking to overcome their, their temptations and their trials and their struggles, and, and yet genuinely hoping in Christ, and yet seeing defeat in their life, and really pleading earnestly, Christ, help me, help me. And uh, the writer this book says, I long to see their face on that day that they, that they made it in through all their toils and troubles and hardships and difficulties and bondage of the flesh. How excited they will be. Right? Because for those of us who, who know Christ and are walking in no victory over sin for us, so yes, heaven will be exciting. But for those who, who doubted and were, were struggling to get there, what a day of rejoicing that would be. I just think that's, that's what this hymn is, is talking about. But this, this is talking about the, the, the glories of heaven. And I just pray that we as a church might be so heavenly minded that our, our, our matters might not be on the things of the earth. That we might focus on Jesus and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace.